our midst as a body, Lord, and we lift up this fall festival that's coming up. And, and Lord, we want to be a blessing to our community, to say that we love you, we care for you, we want to create something for you to come to as a family that's safe, that's enjoyable. And so, Lord, I pray for our people to be stirred up, Lord, that they would come ready to mingle, ready to serve in whatever capacity they can, and to do so joyfully. Lord, would you move in our midst, Lord, and we want to see people come to Christ and then grow up in Christ, and Lord, I pray for the second service that's coming up. I know there's probably mixed emotions, some who are like wanting all to be together, and now this is separating us, Lord, but would you just move in our midst, Lord? Would you create a space here for people to come and grow and mature in Christ? Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you for the work that you're doing here. Lord, I pray for the sermon as we open up your word, that you would move in us. Lord, that you would open up our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. God, thank you that you've not left us on our own. And Lord, I pray that, that we would be humbled and amazed and overjoyed that you have given us your word. And so may it encourage us, may it challenge us this morning, may it exhort us, may it do whatever it needs to do to grow us into the image of your son. So Lord, thank you for this time, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to let you have a seat, grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 7. We've taken a break from Acts in the month of September in order to focus on the church. And as Charles Spurgeon said, the church is the dearest place on earth. My prayer has been and will continue to be that you would view the church in the same manner. That this indeed would be the dearest place on earth for you as we gather together. Remember we talked about the fact that we were all once aliens. We were all separated from God. We didn't come into this world loving Jesus. Do you know that? Like for you to say, oh, I've always loved God is not true. We were born enemies of God. Aliens. And through faith and repentance, we are made citizens of heaven. That should make us a church that is overjoyed, gives us reasons to glorify God. Church is the dearest place on earth. Now we may wonder like, oh, that was just a break, wasn't it? Like we're just getting away from Acts in order to start the new year and there's the theme. But these two things are very much tied, Acts and church being the dearest place on earth. What's been our theme for Acts? To the end of the earth, right? Taking the gospel to the end of the earth. Acts is really the story of the beginning of the church. Uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this. This is the theme of really the whole book. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is all about the Holy Spirit being given to believers. And we're beginning to see the gospel move out of Jerusalem. This is sort of a segue. These six through nine chapters are kind of transitioning from just being focused in Jerusalem to the end of the earth. But church, the dearest place on earth in the book of Acts, go hand in hand. Well, last time we were in Acts, we looked at Stephen. He had, was just beginning to take center stage. And if you remember... Uh, the Hellenistic Jews came to the apostles and they said, hey, our widows aren't being cared for in the daily distribution. This isn't right. 
And so the apostles, they called forth seven men to help take care of this great need because they were responsible for the preaching of the word and for prayer. They couldn't be sidetracked with these things, but yet they saw it as a very important ministry. And so Stephen was one of these men who filled the place of helping make, making sure the daily distribution was getting taken to those who had need. And then we looked at the second part of Acts where Stephen, full of grace and power, says in verse 8, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And of course, one of the themes throughout the beginning of Acts is this persecution that has taken place. Because the religious leaders are jealous. And once again, they are jealous of the attention that Stephen is given. And we see, verse 10, as they're coming up and disputing with him, verse 10 says in chapter 6, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was a wise man, and they could not keep up with him. And then look at the false charges they brought against him because of the fact that they could not stand against it. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So they're bringing accusations that they're def he's defaming the temple and defaming the law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They can't compete with him and so they have to bring false accusation. And this all brings us to where we're at this morning, chapter Seven. And if I'm just honest with you, it's been a struggle this week. Uh, so we are looking at 53 verses this morning. How do you preach 53 verses? That's, that's like basically reading the whole chapter here and then calling it a day. We're not going to do that. We're going to skim through it. We're going to pull out the meat that we need to hear from it. But what we see here. Uh, let's just look at verse 1 to get started with this thing. This is Stephen's sermon, one of the longest written messages in the book of Acts here. This is what it says in verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? So the high priest at this point is probably Caiaphas. If you remember, that's the same high priest who is at the trial of Jesus. And now he's given Stephen the opportunity to defend himself. So, hey, Stephen, these accusations have been brought up to you. What do you have to say for yourself? Now, any normal thinking, you would, you would look at Stephen as taking this opportunity to now defend himself, to come up with some proof of why what they're saying wasn't true. But that's not what happens here. Stephen, instead of taking on the role of defendant, he actually takes on the role of prosecutor. And what we see in the next 50 verses is the Jewish history where Stephen takes them through talking about the promise made to Abraham. And then how that promise was fulfilled through Joseph and Moses. And in verse 51, you see why Stephen went through all of this history. Look at verse 51 with me. Chapter 7. He says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who was that? Remember who that was? John the Baptist, right? Was killed. The righteous one was Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen isn't there to defend himself. He's there to call them out for their sin. And for the rest of the time this morning, I want to talk about two warnings that we see here, as well as the truth of who God is. And the first warning is this. Beware of having a religion of God without a relationship with God. Beware of having a religion of God without a relationship with God. There's a common theme here all throughout this section of scripture. And that's the theme of rejection. As Stephen starts out early in this chapter explaining the history of Abraham. God showed up to him, made a promise with Abraham that he would give his ancestors an inherited land. Which was the very land that Stephen and the Sanhedrin were meeting in at that point. The problem at the time was that he had no son for his bloodline to carry on. Abraham was childless. So how could this promise come true when he had no offspring? Look at verse 8 of chapter 7. And this is what God did to Abraham. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision was a promise between Abraham and God that Abraham would be, and his offspring would be God's chosen people. That's what circumcision was. It goes on to say, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And then notice what happens to Joseph. He kind of skips through here. We don't, we're not going through Isaac. We're really not talking a whole lot of Jacob. And he runs straight to Isaac. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, those are the 12 sons of Joseph, uh, of Jacob, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. So if you remember, Joseph had this dream of his parents and his brothers bowing down. There were two of them, two dreams that he had. And on top of that, his father's favorite, he was his father's favorite son. And his dad bought him a Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you like <laughs> musicals. <laughs> this multicolored, beautiful robe. He was his favorite, and Jacob gave it to that. And, and parents, let me just pause right here and just let you know, in case you didn't, it is not a good idea to, to choose a favorite child. <laughs> Unless you only have one, then it's okay. <laughs> and this created quite the mess, because they were super jealous. His brothers were jealous. And so instead of understanding that this dream was a prophecy that Joseph would actually deliver his family, they rejected him. They sold him into slavery. Does this sound like anyone else that you know? Somebody who was the hope for a people and came and said he was the hope? And the people reject him. Does that sound familiar to you? Indeed, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And Stephen 
is wanting to get across the point that, listen, just as you rejected Joseph, your father's rejected Joseph, so you have rejected God's chosen man. He means for us to understand there's a correlation between Joseph and Jesus. Look at verse 52. It says it there. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. All throughout the book, all throughout the Old Testament, there is this theme of rejection. Look at the life of Moses. So going back to Joseph, he, he does, uh, what happens is that Joseph ultimately comes to Egypt, rises to second in command. He calls Jacob and his brothers to come and they rescue them. And while they're in Egypt for 400 years, the Israelites grew to estimates of a million people. And there was a king that arose who did not know of who Joseph was. And so, because of the fear of them might taking over the Egyptians, they imprisoned them. And they even went to the place where they killed their firstborn, the, the sons. As they were born, they told the Hebrew women, hey, kill them before they reach life, before they come to life. Like, you got to take care of this so that they don't rise up and overtake us. But there was an Israelite who was miraculously saved. Of course, that is Moses. And if you remember, his parents hid him in a basket where he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and was raised in the instruction and wisdom of the Egyptians. Look what happens in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So he was raised, he saw what was going on, and now he's going to visit them. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. So he's trying to protect his own people here. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So once again, you have a man sent from God to deliver the Israelites, and what do they do? They reject him as well. And so fast forward 40 years, Moses skips town, and while he's in the wilderness, he comes across this burning bush, and he, he receives a message. Look what happens in verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has come, what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Don't you find this amazing? And it is hard for me not to judge the Israelites. They are enslaved in Egypt, being beaten. The work has increased. God sends Moses, and he sends these plagues that, by the way, they only affected the Egyptians. They did not touch the Israelites at all. And it culminated with the death of the firstborn son. And so they hear these Egyptian moms and fathers crying because they have lost their firstborn son. And meanwhile, they are led away, kicked out of Egypt. Go, worship your God. Get away from us, please. They plunder the Egyptians. They come to the Red Sea, and they start complaining. But then, of course, Moses, through God's hand, parts the Red Sea. And so you have these people, all night long the seas are parting, and in the morning they are walking through the Red Sea walls built up of water on both sides of them. See the fish swimming. And they are walking on the bed of the river, and the ground is dry, walking right through this. And as soon as the last person steps on the other side, the Egyptian army has followed them in, and the walls of water collapse and destroy the whole Egyptian army. Don't you think, like, that would somehow change their lives for the rest of eternity? If you go to the St. Joe River today and it parts before you, are you going to forget that? It is hard to fathom, and yet, what happens? They're spent, they spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering. Why? Because they've rejected the ways of God. And then while Moses is getting the law of God on the mountain, he comes down and they have built for themselves a calf. They have forgotten everything that God had done. Once again, as Joseph was a picture of Jesus, so Moses was to be a picture of Christ. And yet, they rejected Moses and all that God had did, all that God had done through him. The Sanhedrin would have claimed to know God. They went to the temple religiously to worship. They looked to follow the law, and they let you know about it when you didn't follow the law. They had a religion of God, but they did not have a relationship with him. And if we aren't careful, we can fall into the same trap. We can find ourselves doing all the right things, making church a priority, reading our Bibles, giving to the poor, maybe even saying a prayer here and there. And all the while, it is possible for our hearts to be far away from God, just as we see in the Israelites and in the Sanhedrin here. I've even looked at people who have such a passion for what songs that we sing in worship and such a distaste for anything that is not a hymn. 
Now, I, I am a huge proponent of someone who values what we sing. We don't just sing every popular song that comes our way. But we can come so religious about it that we are looking for a little nook and cranny everywhere to try to decipher, oh, this is not good. We shouldn't do this. Oh, this is a new song. We shouldn't be singing new songs. Oh, I know a church who sings that song down the road, and they're not good. Oh, we should only sing hymns, the ones that have stood the test of time. That is a religious thing. We have to be careful of that. Yes, we value what we sing, but we got to be careful that we don't allow our preferences to become law. can be obsessed with those things and and then go about our weeks rarely even spending time with God rarely opening our Bibles rarely seeking him in prayer but hey at least we sang the right songs in church and this really begs the question how do we know if we have a religion without a relationship how do we know that that is true well let me share with you one thing that we actually discussed at our men's meeting on Thursday uh, w- one major sign that we can really decipher whether or not we have a religion or relationship is where our affections lie. Are we characterized by people who have joy? Do we look at the things that God has called us to do and pursue them wholeheartedly? Listen to what 1 John 5, 3 says. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And notice this. And his commandments are not burdensome. God doesn't give us his law, the rules to follow in here in order to restrain us. Like to take away our fun or to make life miserable for us. He doesn't give us these instructions in order to make our lives miserable. His commandments are not burdensome. And if we find God's commandments burdensome, that may be a sign that we have been pursuing a religion, but we have no relationship with God. A call to meet God's people, to meet with God's people, the need to get into his word and to seek him in prayer, the call to flee sexual immorality, to be kind and forgiving, to put away anger, to not get drunk. These aren't things given to strip away our joy. Rather, these are all things for our good. How many of you have given into sexual sin and then walked away from that thinking, man, that was so beneficial for me? I am so glad I participated in that. I am so glad I put that image before me. My life is so much better now because of it. Oh, the fact that, that it led me to hide from my spouse what I was doing. Oh, I just felt, it felt so good to have that secret that nobody else knew about me. Nobody thinks that way, do we? Or, you know what, it felt so good to blow up at that person and watch them cower. Oh, that felt amazing. Oh, and the fact that that relationship is completely broken. Lord, thank you for that. That's so, that is so good for me. We don't respond that way, do we? But yet, we look at God's rules and we can find ourselves in a place where it's a burden to us. But God gives us his word, his instructions in order to protect us. Protect us. They're boundaries that are there for our good. But if you find the Christian life a drag, it may be because you don't have a relationship with God at all. Beware, beware, Christian, of having a religion of God without a relationship with Him. 
There's another warning that we see here. It's this. Beware of putting God in a box. Beware of putting God in a box. The Jews very much valued the temple. And before that, they valued the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle that they would build up? And then they would tear down whenever it was time to move and then build it up again. They loved this. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. They loved the temple. This was the place that they went to to meet with God. And remember, they even brought an accusation against Stephen saying that he was speaking against the temple. But here's what the Jews don't understand. The, the tabernacle was not the end for God. The tabernacle was not meant to be a place that only, only God went to the temple. You could only meet God if you went there. What they did is they looked at a good thing and made it an ultimate thing. The temple in and of itself wasn't bad, but it wasn't God. It wasn't his word. God is not defined by a place. God is not defined by a temple. The Jews made too much of it. And listen to how Stephen destroys this understanding or this thinking that the temple was ultimate. Verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, the Jews didn't really care about God. They cared about what they made God to be in their own minds. And they put God in a box. And they defined him by a place that you had to go to in order to meet him. And whatever they wanted to put in there, that is what they worshipped. So it's no surprise, right? It's no surprise that when God's people came and confronted them, they rejected God. It's no surprise that they rejected Jesus because Jesus came and said, look, it's not about a religion. You're not good enough. You can't do good enough, enough good things in order to earn favor with me. And so they killed him for it. Because what they were saying is the man-made things that you have created are worthless. How can the one who created all things be confined to something that has been created? It's impossible. In our culture today, this can all get lost in translation because none of us probably have idols that we bow down to on a regular basis. We don't have like a Buddha statue that we say our prayers to. Uh, so we can kind of miss the translation of what's going on here and think, well, that's weird. I don't do any of that stuff. But our idols are much more subtle than that. And if we are honest with ourselves, we like to justify them, don't we? <laughs> Lest we be tempted to think we are an idol worshiper, consider what John Calvin had to say about it. He said this. The human heart is a factory of idols. 
every one of us from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. The truth is, is that we are all idol factories. Our hearts are making idols all day long. And here's, here's how I define an idol. An idol is anything that takes away your affections from the Lord. Anything that gets in the way from you going to God first. And this can be a myriad of things. And this week it would be good for all of us to consider any idolatry that we have allowed in our hearts. And then take the the theoretical hammer and smash them all. Let's take a look at a major idol that all of us build in our lives. That's the idol of comfort. How many of you like to be comforted? How many of you like to escape, we like to say, from the world? I'm not saying those are bad things per se. But we often run to other things for comfort, for security, before we run to God. It's not wrong to want to find comfort, but often we make it an idol in our lives by demanding for it or making that our go-to instead of running to our Heavenly Father. How many of you have multiple screens in your house? Need a little comfort, need a little escape. What do we do? Pull out our phones. And that's what I do. You're at the grocery store, and often instead of me praying, Lord, provide an opportunity. Maybe I could be a light and salt to the people in line here. I'm looking at my phone, waiting for my turn to get up there. Maybe I'm reading an article. Maybe I'm finishing a movie that I almost finished. And we get home. It's been a tiring day. I deserve a break. So we pull out our iPads. We got Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, cable TV, all of these things, which, if we're not careful, can keep us from running to the Lord because we fill our time with these things and then we're addicted and then we use the word binge as if it's okay now. I'm going to go binge on the show of Netflix. Hey, it was awesome. I watched The Office in one day. And we brag about these things as if somehow those are things that we should be proud of. Meanwhile, our hearts are drifting from the Lord, and we don't understand, God, why aren't you good? Why aren't you good? It's because we're filling our minds with garbage. We've made these idols, and we're running after other things instead of running after God. They're taking the place of him. Here's another place that I run to for comfort, food. After all, we've named an entire food group after that, right? (laughs) Comfort foods. Oh, what food group is that in? Oh, it's in the comfort food, food group. And everybody knows what you mean by comfort food, right? We're not thinking lettuce. <laughs> we're not going to go grab some carrots and we're, oh, comfort food. Nothing comforts me like a stick of, car- you know, a carrot stick. It's amazing. Oh, man, to chew on some, some bay leaves and parsley. I mean, there's just nothing better than that. <laughs> That's not what we run to for comfort, is it? We, we go, we buy the gallon ice cream and the kids are like, where's mine? Well, this is mine. You don't get any. Sorry. Peanut butter M&M's. We got this huge bag of pe- peanut butter M&M's yesterday. I mean, there's seven of us, so I'm give, give us a little bit of <laughs> break. Gone like that. I, I don't go and buy the regular. Like they say, share size. I'm share with who? Like this is all mine. And we can justify us running to food over and over again as an escape. And we're not looking at it as an idol. We're not identifying the fact that we are running to food in order to find comfort. Instead of running to Jesus. And so we justify it. 
And we can really look for comfort in many different areas, can't we? Sex, drugs, alcohol, sports. Let me just say, if you're a Notre Dame fan, you're not finding much comfort this week, are you? I'm a Notre Dame fan. I'm not trashing you. Shopping. I mean, Amazon. (laughs) We can have packages the next day now in a lot of different cases. Relationships. Why do you think we jump from relationship to relationship? Why? Look at the world, and nobody stays committed anymore. Why? Well, it's not comforting to me anymore. It's no longer benefiting me at all, so I'm going to run to something else. Meanwhile, we've made relationships a God. And does that serve us well? No, not at all. Vacations, houses. A lot of these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when we run to them to find comfort, we run to them to find hope. Instead of running to Christ, it becomes an idol for us. That's just comfort. How many other different idols do we make in our lives? Security. We make jobs an idol where we got to get to the top no matter what it takes, no matter who I run over, no matter how much neglect I give my family, I'm going to get whatever I can. Exercise. So often those who exercise can look at those who are overweight and say, you're idolatrous. Meanwhile, they are obsessing over their bodies and working out like crazy. Both of those are extreme, right? Do you know the word glutton is not necessarily you eat too much? A glutton is somebody who's obsessed with food. And so every time somebody takes something that's not lettuce, (laughs) not something that grows, there's judgment. You ever come across those kind of people? You're in the gym and they're like, well, you're not doing that right. Or look at my muscles. They're bigger than yours. You can make exercise a God. How about this? Youthfulness. Do you see a culture that is not obsessed with finding the fountain of youth? And so we do everything possible in order to hang on to every ounce of youth that we've gotten. I can say this about my wife. Number one, I don't think she's old, period. But the older she gets, the more beautiful she becomes to me. Acceptance can become an idol. Grades. Our health, have you seen people like holding on to their health like it's written on the wall? Like your number's up. And you are, not to say that we shouldn't pray for healing, but we could become so obsessed that we are losing track of the fact that this world is not our home. Like we are going to a place that God has created for us. These are all ways that we put God in a box. They're all man-made things. But God does not dwell in things made of human hands. Beware of putting God in a box. Well, I don't want to only speak of negative things. There's actually some very good news that we can find in here. So maybe you find yourself in a place now where you're like, man, maybe I have had a religion of God without a relationship with him. Maybe you're even this morning just overwhelmed by the idols that your heart has created that you have bowed down to and you feel defeated this morning. We can find great hope and comfort in what we see here, and that's this. God is sovereign and gracious. God is sovereign and gracious. Look at verse 49 again. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? 
did not my hands make all these things? God cannot be defined by our understanding. God cannot be put in a box. He is sovereign over everything. Let's just walk through some of these real quick. And we see the sovereignty of God all throughout here. Verse 3. Go into the land I will show you. Verse 4. God removed Abraham from there into the land in which you are now living. God did that. Verse 7, I will judge the nations that they serve. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and, all, and over all his household. Did Joseph do that? No, God did that. And Joseph was able to say to his brothers who were afraid of him when he revealed himself to him in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. It's all throughout Jewish history, God's fingerprints have been seen everywhere. With Joseph, God used what happened for good. God spared Moses. He brought them back even after initially rejecting him and delivered them out of Egypt. But here's the thing. He's not only sovereign. Some people believe that, but they can't correlate the fact that God is sovereign and he's good. That God is sovereign and he is gracious. He's gracious because of this. Couldn't he have easily said to Joseph's family, forget you. You rejected him the first time. He gave you a dream. He helped you understand, hey, that dream came from me and you rejected him. So forget it. You're on your own. Could he have said that? How about the rejection of Moses initially where he kills the Egyptian who was beating the Israelite? Could they have said, fine, then you're on your own. I tried to do it, but you rejected me. You're, you're done. How about this? Even after God delivers the, the Israelites through the Red Sea, and then immediately, what are they grumbling about? Where's our food? What do we have to drink here? Life was so much better in Egypt. Why did you leave us out here to die? I mean, aren't you glad that you're not God? <laughs> aren't you glad that those around you aren't God? Because if we're honest with ourselves, wouldn't we be tempted to just say, forget it? I mean, my trigger to anger can be so quick that I think I would have obliterated so many people. I praise God, and you should probably praise God too in light of that, <laughs> that I'm not God. God is not just sovereign, he's gracious. He was so patient with the Israelites. The Old Testament over and over and over again, his people reject him. And over and over and over again, God is gracious. He's relentlessly gracious to us. And then we see that sweet, sweet verse. Look with me at verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the flock. They had no idea what was coming. C.S. 
see, what they didn't know back then was that there was a slavery that was far worse than the bondage they experienced in Egypt. A far greater need for delivery than from that of famine. It's the slavery of our own sin. And this prophecy that Moses spoke about was about Jesus, the promised one that's mentioned in verse 52. Jesus, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, suffered as we suffered, was tempted in every way yet without sin. And then he was brutally beaten and hung on a cross, killed, placed in a tomb, but in three days he rose again. Giving all of us the opportunity that if we just repent and believe in him, we can find hope and salvation. We have not been left on our own, brothers and sisters. If you are the idol worshiper, if you have been one who has a religion but not a relationship, there is hope for you today. It starts with you understanding that, yes, you are an idol worshiper. But God has made a way from you. God has made a way for you from your sin. If you would just repent and place your faith in him. No matter if you've put God in a box. If you've tried to make him what you want him to be. 1 John 1, 9 still says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If you have questions about that, let me encourage you. Don't leave before you talk to someone about this. There's hope for you today. He has not left us on our own. My friends, beware of having a relationship with God without a relationship. Religion can't save you. Beware of putting God in a box. Give that up. God is greater than our greatest thoughts. But also find great hope in this. God is sovereign. He is in control. And he's also gracious. He's made a way for us to be made right with him. So give your life to him. You can have a great day. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus on the cross that, Lord, all of us here, all of us here at times have made religious statements that have nothing to do with the relationship with you, Lord. Things that we have added to salvation and we ask your forgiveness. Lord, all of us from time to time have made idols of things. Things, a lot of things that are even good. But we've made them God things and we've put them in your place and we've run to them for comfort, for escape, for encouragement instead of running to you. But Lord, in all of that, thank you for sending us Christ. Lord, that we have a way through that, Lord. We have a way through our sin, Lord. That's why you came. You came because you know that our hearts are idol factories. You know that there's nothing we can do. That we can't do enough things. We can't be religious enough to earn favor. And I thank you for that, Lord. Because when you genuinely save us, then you hold on to us. And we can't lose that, Lord. And you who began a good work will bring it to completion. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you as Savior. Would you open their eyes to you that they may behold all the wondrous deeds of yours. Lord, that they would not leave before they repent of their sin and place their faith in you. God, thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Here's some final action steps for you. I encourage you, memorize 1 John 5, 3. Especially if you struggle to look at God's commandments as if they are something that create burdens for us. His commandments aren't burdensome. They're actually freeing for us because it helps us identify sin in our life. It points out sin. 
And I encourage you, spend some time this, this week looking at Psalm 103, this, this understanding of joy. Christians should all, we should all be about joy because of what we have in the Lord. This is a little bit of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Does that sound burdensome to you? Spend some time reading Psalm 103. I encourage you, identify your idols. What are you running to for comfort? What are you running to for escape? Have you placed things in the place of where God should be? And then take time to repent and smash those idols. And then along with all, I encourage you, journal about God's grace. We forget, don't we? We forget God's goodness to us. Take some time. Write out 10,000 reasons why we should bless the Lord. Take some time to journal about that. Take some time to praise God. Maybe even repent because you've just been looking at all the negative that you've seen and have forgotten how good God is. Well, so glad that you've joined us today. Uh, remember, we are staying for a time of prayer. So we're going to gather back here in about nine minutes. So grab your kids. Everybody come in here. And let's be ready to go before the throne of God.